6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his session entitled, Revelation Part 2. And then we have the second character shows up, the beast out of the earth, elsewhere called the false prophet in the book of Revelation. He has two horns like a lamb. In other words, he has a, horns are a symbol of authority. Um, he speaks, he has authority of the lamb, uh, like the lamb, but he speaks as the dragon. He's, he has used Satan's words. He causes the earth to worship the first beast. So this is a duet. You've got a political leader, you've got a religious leader bringing people to worship him. He deceives the earth with miracles. The world is not ready for this. Are you ready to have a major satanic leader do miracles? Well, they're fake miracles. Not necessarily. Some may be. Doesn't matter. Everybody, they're, they're apparently very effective. He forces, he apparently has the power to force the worship of an image of the first beast. That's what's so parallel with the analogy with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3. Everyone that receives the mark in the right hands of the foreheads, worship him. No man may buy or sell without the name or the number of the first beast. And of course that number is 666, which has of course become very fabled throughout literature. And then let's take a look. He causeth both the small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And I have a theory why it's a right hand and forehead I'll come to in a minute. And that no man may buy or sell, save he that hath the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Notice it's his number or name, not yours. It's not your pin number. You may not be able to get a pin number unless you take his number, his, his an allegiance with him, but okay. And then verse 18 is the famous verse. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 600, threescore, and six. And I think there's the only physical description we have in the Bible of the Antichrist is in Zechariah 11, verse 17. Woe to the idle shepherd. It's I-D-O-L, shepherd. That leaveth a flock, the sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. It's my suspicion that he has a head wound, and it's, it's miraculously healed somehow, but he still has an incapacity from that. His right eye and arm, I believe, are darkened. So people who are pledging allegiance to him take his mark on their right hand or on their forehead. That's a conjecture. But uh, it's intriguing that the Scripture is so interconnected on these things that I suspect that one, one reaffirms the other. The 666, of course, the word in Greek for Christos is, uh, is in Greek is Christos. The first and last letters of that and there's this funny number in between. The, the, uh, the, the first letter is, has a value in Greek of 600. The last letter has 6. And the little one in between is 60. So it turns out that the gematria or the numeric, numerics of the Greek also happen to be 666, which is kind of interesting. But again, I don't look at barcodes. Uh, there's all these interesting little things floating around that miss the point. 
The people who are taking, it's not something subterranean, it's something very conspicuous. They take, they deliberately pledge allegiance to him by taking his name or number. And uh, the word uh, uh, in, in the Greek is antichristos, which is a, a pseudo-Christ. Not against Christ in the tense that opposite of Christ. He is, of course, but the word actually means in place of, a pseudo-Christ. But anyway, um, a lot of people get into gametria, and let me just dismiss it by pointing out uh, there are numerical values for both Hebrew and Greek letters, interestingly enough. And people like to play with those. But it turns out if you get into this, you'll discover there's so many rules that you can actually make it say anything you want. There are all kinds of people have all kinds of strange conjectures. There's an expression in the computer industry that, that I think fits the situation. If you torture the data long enough, it'll confess to anything. And that's pretty much uh, true of mysticism in general and certainly gematria. But uh, let's move on. We've got the seven bowls of wrath in chapter 16. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now this is the final wrath being poured out, literally poured out of these bowls. I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. So we have the seven bowls of wrath. The first bowl is sores on the men with a mark. Okay. The second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. So we have the second bowl, the sea of blood, all died. The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of the waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art, which wast, and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are, for they are worthy. And heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judge, judgments. It's interesting, all through this, you never, you never make, hear anyone making the claim they're not just, not just, not deserving. So anyway, we have the third bowl, which is the rivers and waters become blood. The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and the power was given unto him to scorch men with fire, and the men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. And so we have the fourth bowl, the sun scorched with fire. The fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his, and, the king, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues with pain. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and in their sores, and repented not of their deeds. So we have the fifth thing with darkness on the beast's kingdom. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. There it is again. And the water thereof was dried up, and the, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. That's kind of interesting. It's actually kings of the rising sun, but that's the tra traditional way of referring to the east, incidentally. So we have, anyway, the Euphrates and the kings of the east. Now this time we have a break, but the break is just a little brief one. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So we've got these three spirits like frogs. This may be just idioms like locusts on the one hand, but it's interesting to me that when you get into the UFO literature, 
that the heavy ones are these reptilian creatures. So I think there's a, that, that's kind of fascinating to me. That may be part of the previous bowl. Verse 15 of this sequence is, is, is really the parenthesis. It says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth, keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. That little praise is sort of a break, if you will. Then he, he gathered them together where? Into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Megiddo is the place. Har Megiddo is the Mount Megiddo. Armageddon is a Har Megiddo. It's, it's, the, it's the mount, that, the conspicuous mount there. If you visited the area, it's an incredible place to visit. Anyway, so we have the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And why the air? Because who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. See, first it was the beast's throne, now it's Satan himself. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. So that takes care of the bowls. Now, you, something kind of interesting, if you take the seven trumpet judgments we went through, you'll notice that there's a parallelism between the organization of the trumpet judgments and the bowls. The trumpet judgments are pretty, in a sense, they are like a one-third of the bowl kind of thing. They call these the judgments of the thirds. Whether it's the burning on the ground or the sea of blood, rivers, so forth, trumpet judgments seem to be very parallel to that, but one-third of the trees and grass, one-third of the sea, one-third of the waters made bitter, one-third of the sun, stars, and so forth, one-third of the men slain. There's something else you should be sensitive to, what I'll call the heptatic structure. We went through the seven-sealed scroll, and it had a, the, the chapter seven was the, you know, that was chapter six, chapter seven had the little parenthesis. The seventh seal, chapters eight and nine, led to seven trumpets, which also had an uh, interval between, you know, before the sixth and seventh, chapters 10 through 14 in this case. The seventh trumpet then breaks down into seven bowls. And it, too, had a little one-verse parenthesis. But I think this design is deliberate. I think there's structure there. And there's much more to it than this. I'm just giving you the overview. I challenge you to make a list of the sevens in the book of Revelation. Every time you think you've got them all, you'll find one more. And many of them are sort of hidden. Some are very obvious, and some are hidden, the heptatic structure. Mount Megiddo, the site of, uh, of uh, Armageddon, of course, is about 60 miles north and slightly uh, west of Jerusalem. That's where Jabin and his 900 chariots were overwhelmed. That's where Gideon's 300 uh, defeated the Midianites and all that. That's where Samson triumphed, triumphed over the Philistines. And Barak and Deborah defeated Sisera that I mentioned before. Saul was slain by the Philistines there at Gilboa. Uh, near there. Ahaziah was slain by Arabs of Jehu. Pharaoh Necho slew King Josiah there. And throughout history, the Saracens, Christian Crusaders, Egyptians, Persians, Druze, Turks, Arabs, all through history, you'll discover this is a very favored battlefield. Napoleon had his disastrous march from Egypt to Syria there. So Megiddo has is, is become a, almost a fable or an idiom in literature. But don't let that confuse you. I believe there's a literal destiny at Megiddo. This is all detailed for you in Daniel chapter 11, the kings of the south, kings of the north. And then we have, by some people's rendering, the Antichrist being a western confederacy who's troubled when he hears tidings of the east. 
But I personally suspect from Micah 5 and Isaiah 10 and some other passages that the Antichrist is not part of the Western, he's part of the Roman Empire, but he comes out of the Eastern part. So I believe he's associated somehow with the kings of the North coming in. But uh, that's a whole other study. We know the believing remnant in Jerusalem will seek refuge in Edom at Petra and then petition his return. And Jesus will return by rescuing the remnant. He comes back first in Edom before he comes to the Mount of Olives. It's all in Isaiah 63 and elsewhere. And then he will return to Mount of Olives as Zechariah 14 uh, talks about him returning and so forth. Also, chapter 17 18 has Mystery Babylon. We talked a little bit about that last time. The great whore. She rides the beast with seven heads and ten horns. She's described as the mother of harlots and abominations. She's drunk with the blood of the saints. Don't confuse her with the beast. She's the woman that rides the beast. There's a big difference. Babylon the Great is a city that ra raises over the kings. The kings, merchants, and those that trade by sea bemoan her catastrophic uh, demise. I think it's a literal city yet to rise to power. It's interesting to see the contrast of two women. The, Israel is the woman in chapter 12. Babylon is the woman in chapter 17. One is the, Israel's, uh, uh, the woman in Israel is in heaven. The one, other one is riding many waters. One is the mother of the man-child. The other is the mother of all harlots. One's clothed with the sun. The other one's clothed with purple, scarlet, and gold. The, Israel's identity is with sun, moon, and stars because of the comments that Jacob made. The woman riding the beast reigns over the kings of the earth, literally, and certainly has tried for throughout the last 2,000 years. The enemy of the Israel was the dragon. The enemy of the woman riding the beast is the beast itself. The ten kings ultimately will devour her. Israel is hated by the world. The woman riding the beast is caressed by the world. The woman in uh, Israel is uh, uh, sustained by the wings of heaven. The other one is sustained by the dragon. It, it, it contrasts all the way through here. It's interesting that Israel is described in the Old Testament as widowed and divorced in Hosea and elsewhere. The woman riding the beast in uh, chapter 17 brags that she's not a widow. And I think the she deliberately is drawing the contrast there. The final location of Israel, of course, associated with the New Jerusalem, the final Location of the woman riding the beast is the habitation of demons. So it's interesting to see that it's black and white, different contrast. The destruction of Babylon we've talked about before, that if you can contrast Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, they describe it as catastrophically uh, uh, being destroyed like it's never been through history. And many nations attacking, and, and Israel's in the land forgiven. Both describe it being destro destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. Never again to be inhabited, bricks never to be reused. And that's why we attach such importance on the reemergence of Babylon in today's, in today's history. Uh, this, this destruction that's described is, occurs in the day of the Lord, which is yet future. And we're talking about a literal city on the banks of the Euphrates, not a symbolic rendering of Rome or Paris or New York or Hollywood or whatever. The king's fornication, drunk with wine, scarlet and purple, golden cup, all those idioms are common to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the book of Revelation. So I think that we see the same thing in view here. These, this paradox is resolved. Is it, is it really an idiom of, of Rome, or is it, is it something, uh, um, is it more literal? I think both are true. And I think it's resolved for us in Zechariah chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. There Zechariah sees a ephah, which is a, like a, one, a big bushel merit measure, and in the ephah is confined a woman labeled wickedness. She's sealed in with a talent of lead. The ephah is the standard commercial volumetric measure in those days, and the lead was a measure of weight, about 97 pounds. 
This ephah then is carried by two women with wings of a stork. Now that's a strange idiom for a Jewish vision because the stork is an unclean bird. They carry it between earth and heaven. It's a vision, remember. They carry it to build the house in the land of Shinar, and there it shall be established and set upon her own base. I believe the centroid of power that represented Babel under Nimrod, that becomes Babylon the Great, that then moved to Pergamos under the Persians and under Rome under the Romans, which is the fountain of all idolatry on the planet Earth, is, is uh, the Babylonian system packaged in either Latin or Greek or whatever. I believe it returns to where it started to receive the judgment of God. If that premise is correct, we'll see the literal city of Babylon reemerge. And uh, it's presently guarded by Marines. Trying to get there is foolish because it's very, very dangerous what's going on. Watch your news and see what happens over the coming year or two with Babylon. And I think it'll be very surprising to most people. It's, it's there, it's being rebuilt. So it has not been, it's never been destroyed in a way that fulfills the, the uh, biblical prophecies. Okay, so we have seven bowls of wrath. We finally have the seventh one. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of heaven and from the throne saying, It is done. And indeed it is. Okay. And then we have the fifth, what I call the fifth horseman. The horseman everyone overlooks. Not in chapter 6, chapter 19. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. This is the real one now. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Make war. In Numbers, we have the strange phrase that the Lord will go against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Yes, he has fought in the day of battle. In Joshua, in Joshua 5, I'll explain that to you. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's not his blood, it's the blood of his enemies. That's all described in Isaiah 63. But we move on here. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth forth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is this guy? Any doubt? <laughs> this, now we get into the next topic, is the millennium. This is the strangest period of all periods in the history in the Bible, the thousand-year reign. Verse chapter. This is all in Revelation chapter twenty. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having a key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. Wow. This is the thousand-year reign. This is the thousand years that uh, Satan is bound. I take it literally. I don't think it's symbolic. I think it's real. It's not permanent. It's, he's going to be turned loose after a thousand years for, to deceive the nations one more time. So we ha it, the millennium is not out of Revelation 20 alone. It was promised to David in 2 Samuel and under oath in Psalm 89. It was predicted throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah. It's a whole study in its own right. People associate the millennium with Revelation 20. That just mentions the exact duration. 
It was promised to Mary in Luke 1, verse 32. It's also in Micah 5 and Isaiah 9 and so forth, that Jesus would rule on the earth. In the Lord's Prayer, you say, Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? Jesus will rule. That's what Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 emphasize. That it be by a rod of iron, before whom every knee shall bow, and so forth. We're going to discover the creation will be changed. There'll be physical changes. Zechariah talks about it in Zechariah 4 and Isaiah 35. The curse of Genesis 3 will be lifted, according to Isaiah 11. And it's not just us, mankind, that's redeemed. The creation is redeemed. Romans 8, verse 20, 21, 22, make allusions to that. Creation which is subject to the bondage of decay until the redemption takes place. The earth will be full of knowledge of the Lord. That makes this a very strange time because after, with Satan bound, there is no excuse. There's no shortages. There's no lack of knowledge about the Lord. And yet, given the chance, after that thousand years, man will once again rebel. And that's all she wrote. Yet, millennium is not eternity. Don't confuse it with what comes after chapter 20. It's not eternity because death and sin are present. And each person there has land. And it will be fruitful. This is strange. This is different than what we'll find in chapter 20, uh, you know, uh, following. Let's talk about the order of events. You know, we talked about the seventh week of Daniel. We know that the first half of that week is a false peace with Israel for, as a result of this covenant. The last half is defined by none other than Jesus Christ, is labeled as the Great Tribulation. Tribulation is three and a half years, not seven. And of course, the battle, it, it climaxes, the tribulation climaxes with the Battle of Armageddon. We believe that rapture takes place prior to the 70th week. During that period of time in heaven, some things happen because Jesus brings us back to interrupt the battle of Armageddon and to establish his millennium, his kingdom. What happens up in heaven is the Bema seat and the marriage supper. There are three different judgment seats that get confused. The first one is the Bema seat, which is a allocation of rewards. It's a judgment seat like judges in an athletic contest. They don't punish them, they reward them. The bema seat of Christ, in the Greek it's the bema. It's the, the term is used, it's the same term is used in the, in the Olympics, etc., when you get your gold medal. That kind of, it's that kind of, that's where the faithful will get uh, recognition. That's also up there that the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. Satan is bound when Jesus comes back as you read. Let's take a little better look at the millennium here. We have Armageddon. Jesus comes back. The, the kingdom has started. Satan is bound. Right after that, or about that time, is there's the sheep and goat judgment, the judgment of the nations, how they treated Israel. That's Matthew 25, the sheep and goat judgment. It's a distinctive judgment. It's not the Bema seat. It's not the great white throne. It's a different thing. It's the beginning of the millennium. It's, it's the, those that survived, and the, 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 they get their judgment. Satan's bound for 1,000 years after which he is released. The 1,000-year period is defined by his being bound and his release. And uh, it's when he's released that he's wiped out, and uh, the great white throne judgment takes place, and this is the judgment of the unsaved dead and uh, others. So the great white throne. And then we have new heavens and a new earth, and down from heaven we have the new Jerusalem. And that's the, what some people would call the eternal state. Don't confuse the period after the great white throne with the millennium, because they're very different. In fact, it's 
easier to talk about the eternal state than the millennium has more mysteries about it. But the new heavens and new earth, that's the final, uh, that's in chapter 21. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Wow. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked to me saying, Come hither, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I have trouble trying to talk about this because I don't have any reason to believe it's only in three dimensions. We may have a hyperspace problem here. But anyway, it has 12 gates named with the 12 tribes. It's got 12 foundations named with 12 apostles. Those are different. And is it cubical? I don't know. It's 12,000 furlongs in each of three dimensions. 1,500 miles, I believe, is what it adds up to. That's a huge cube if, some, if it's a cube. It has no temple because we're dwelling with God Himself. There's no night because the Lamb is the light thereof. The tree of life is there, and so the description is quite uh, uh, similar to Eden and so forth in some respects. Except instead of botanical things, it's, it speaks in terms of light. And the twelve stones are there categorized that are probably parallel with the twelve stones of the breastplate of the high priest. But it's hard to compare them because the idioms are very different in the ancient Hebrew versus the Greek, and there have been attempts to, to, to match them up, but it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of speculation involved. Then we get to 22, which is really just an epilogue to the whole book. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates in the city. And it goes on much more. But finally, I said, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, even so come Lord Jesus. And so ends the book. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 